I'm Coach Tony Miller, and you're listening to a Quick Timeout Podcast. We have conversations with basketball coaches from around the country focused on specific topics designed simply to help grow the game. We are privileged to have with us today on the podcast, Coach Alan Keene, Great Britain's under-20 national head coach. But before we get to Coach, if you have yet to visit the Dr. Dish blog, you're really missing out on a lot of great resources. Included in those resources is a shooting drill series that I've designed for you to use with your players. For each drill, you'll find a diagram, explanation, and also a video of the drill. To find out more about those, simply visit drdishbasketball.com. Click on blog from the drop-down menu. Again, that's drdishbasketball.com. As I mentioned, it's great to have Coach Keen on the podcast with us. Coach, we've been working to do this for quite a while here, and I'm glad it finally worked out. No, it's really it's really a privilege for you to have me on, Coach. Um, you know, I've, I'm an avid podcast listener, and yours is, yours is up near the top of my list, so privileged to be on. Appreciate it. I appreciate that. Uh, we're coming right off of a month of Olympic basketball, international basketball, thanks to the Olympics and, and the qualifying series that led up to those Olympic Games. And so it was uh, kind of my desire to have Coach Keen on for a long time. And I thought this would be as great a time as any. For those of you that maybe follow him on Twitter, he's got an extensive knowledge of the international game and obviously coaches internationally. Let me start with this. Anytime the, the Americans, you know, obviously I'm here in the U.S. and a lot of what my timeline is, especially when the USA plays, is anytime there's a close game or there's a, an American loss, it's something to the effect of, well, the rest of the world's caught up to us. I understand that and I get that to an extent. But I also think that it's style of play that sometimes gives the Americans problems. What is the difference from your perspective, especially once we get to the Olympics where you're seeing the highest level being played? Well, I think the, the, the first point to raise is, you know, and I, and I experience this myself every summer, coach, like preparation is key. You can have the best players, the best talent, but and you can win with that, but it becomes harder. The, the task is much harder. So you're back to what is the biggest influencing factor to a team being successful other than talent, you're back to preparation. And, you know, I think there's no secrets about that, that, that USA team in the Olympics, you know, you had three guys come in 24 hours before their first game, get off a flight from, from the States to, to Japan. And, you know, we're on the floor, I think 18 hours later. And that's, I think that should be celebrated more than actually France beating USA in game one. The fact that these guys were able to get off a plane from one continent to another and actually perform. Uh, the willingness to do it should be actually celebrated a lot as well. But I don't think that I don't think the rest of the world is catching up, is my opinion. I don't think they're catching up. I think it, it was maybe it was getting becoming a bit more balanced, you know, quite a peer. I remember back in 2016, coach, Serbia took USA to within three points in, in the group game. And, you know, I watched that game quite forensically and, and I was trying to find, I was interested in the styles of game. And when I watched that game, I was thinking Serbia have done really well here because of their defense. They have the effective use of hands in the passing lanes, the temperature they played at in terms of controlling the rhythm of the game. And I think teams are honing on the stage so much that actually maybe they're, they're, they're they're spiked with their preparation for the USA because there comes a lot of kudos with beating the USA. You know, if you listen to Brian Gorgian on some of his most recent interviews, he'll talk about, you know, back in his first term with the Olympic team, which was 40 or the Australian team, which was 13 or 14 years ago. 
and they lost to the USA in the quarterfinal, but it was a, it was a close enough game, but they lost. That was almost like a success for those guys. So, you know, the USA is always going to be the benchmark, and, and it still is. Let's not mistake that. USA is still the benchmark of, of, of elite-level basketball. But it's nice to see that there is becoming more balanced that has been for a period of time, but the USA is still winning gold. So, you know, I, I think we need to take a step back as international coaches and, and obs- observers of the game and, and recognize that the, that the USA is still the team to beat. You know, Spain, Serbia, Australia, you know, Argentina, they've had their moments for sure. On that point, coach, would you mind if I talk a bit about the, my observations from the final of France versus USA? Because if you talk about styles of game, there was two very distinct styles of game. And both were incredible to watch. And and I found myself, when I watched the first quarter, I found myself asking myself, how are France going to find the balance of what they have on the floor offensively and what's what's the tax, as Liam Flynn would say, what's the tax they're going to pay on the defensive end? Because the American team was very versatile. You know, you had five guys that could shoot the three, whereas France played with two traditional bigs. And I think that game was incredibly interesting and the flow of that game was really interesting. And I found myself going, do France need more perimeter defense to survive this game? And they're actually their, their fourth quarter run, if you go back and watch the game, when the game was getting away from France, they came back into the game by actually going with four guards on the floor and improving their perimeter defense. But early on, the first quarter, I thought Ruby Gobert put a clinic, gave us a clinic about deep ceiling versus the switch. And France gave us a great clinic on actually how to pass the ball into the post versus the switch, you know, for a junior-minded coach who's looking to teach that better. But then it also, so you look at it and you go, right, France can score inside, but can they defend? Can they they keep their leverage and keep the advantage on the other end of the floor? And they couldn't. And that was was a simple fact. And I I finished that game saying saying to another coach one time, did France's strength create a weakness? And... I guess that's the the beauty of coaching. Like you've got to make decisions. You've got to make tough decisions. And if you look at that game, actually, France had the advantage inside. They exposed that in the first quarter. And they were eager. They continued to show eagerness in the second half to put the ball inside. However, I think it limited their ball movement. They were you could clearly see that. I don't know. I'm speculating, coach. I wasn't in the changing room. Um, as much as I'd love to be, but I can imagine France talked about leveraging their advantage of the inside against the switch. But I thought in the second half, actually, they stopped moving the ball and they tried to put it inside direct, which limited their actual offense. But there was a massive, I think it was clear for everyone to see the adjustment the States made at halftime, the U.S. made at halftime. I think the USA were not credited enough for their perimeter defense. Mm -hmm. I think the USA's perimeter defense is something that we should be talking more. We should have talked more about. You know, it should have been stuff where he, it was incredible. I thought it was outstanding. It was a game changer, and there was a clear adjustment in the second half by the USA. So, for example, I think watching that game, the USA talked about defending the post by playing better on ball defense, and it, it appeared to be that way. And similarly, France made a comeback in the fourth quarter actually by improving their perimeter defense, which actually <laughs> begs the question. What has the biggest impact on winning? You know, is it the offense or is it the perimeter defense? Because, you know, you can limit other things. But one other big observation I want to share with you I had from that game was I thought the USA's mid-range game was outstanding. I thought it really was incredible. And 
France played a lot of drop coverage with Rudy Gobert and USA's ability to make that mid-range coming off ball screens was, was a killer. And I'll share with you actually a conversation I had with Nene Trunic, who's an outstanding Serbian coach and educator of coaches. He shared with me a couple of years ago, going back about three years ago, we were talking about pick and roll coverages. And he said to me, um, I'd advise you to teach your players, to coach your players the mid-range jump shot. And it was at a time when all the articles were being written about, you know, three or or dunk, dunk or three, nothing else, nothing in between. It's 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 diminished return on, on on investment of time kind of thing. And he was saying, Coach, he, he asked me very clearly. He said, Coach, what coverage do you face most in your league or at the European Championships? What do you see most? And you see mostly drop coverage or up to touch. And he's saying the game's evolving now where, you know, teams are doing that and they're giving you that 15-footer. And he said, the guy that's going to make a lot of money in three years from now is somebody who can make a mid-range jump shot coming off that ball screen. And I thought the USA gave a great example of that. But there was two massive disparities in style of game. And and both were great. Both were effective for teams. But it was interesting. How do you find the balance between what you can get on one end and give up on the other end was really intriguing for me. It seemed it like seemed to like me, to from me, the United, United States', States perspective, 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 perspective. That, that they were almost willing to give up Rudy Gobert scoring inside or allowed different players to use their fouls against him to allow him to go to the free throw line, knowing that worst case scenario, we're going to give up two points. We're on the other end. We can either match that with a two or with a three. Yeah, and I completely agree in it. I found myself geeking out a bit in that final coach as I did with all the games. And I, I had a notepad and pen beside me for a few of the games. And this was one of them where I actually measured the impact of paint touches. So I was tracking like how many paint touches and what was the outcome of the paint touch. And they both had similar amounts, like it's like 45, 48 or 46, 47 or something like that. But actually the USA, USA's ability to get to the rim off the drive was significant. And the knock-on effect was like France were doing a decent job plugging gaps, but it was later in the game. But there was a lot of damage done in the second and third quarter. And it was a lot of it was off drives. Like, you know, if, I think USA had like 48 paint touches and something like 37 of them came off the drive, came off the dribble. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, France were the opposite. But... If you look at France paint touches, a lot of them were off the pass, which you just talked about, deep, you know, pick and roll, deep, you know, deep entries to Gobert versus the switch. And you're right, like France scored or got fouled, I think, on 75% of those paint touches off the pass. However, as you said, they were happy to foul Rudy Gobert because they leveraged the fact that he was a poor, he shot poor, shot lower than his average, I think, in that game, actually, from the free throw line. And the other thing, actually, on those paint touches that grabbed me was, you know, the the post touch, like putting the ball in the post. I think France had something like 10 paint touches off post entry passes and something like nine out of 10 or an eight out of 10. They were effective. They were scoring or getting fouled. And it made me think, actually, Gobert was the ideal guy because he's such a big target. But, you know, is there somebody else you could have gone to in those moments who's a better free throw shooter? They probably didn't have that. Yeah, interesting how they how both teams explore the paint, how they how they got the ball inside and and put heat on the rim. But it was very different. It was completely different. But both like did it really effectively. As a basketball coach, you've probably experienced poor youth sports technology. 
Apps like TeamSnap and Sports Engine focus only on operations. They're slow and clunky and not very mobile friendly. Wildcard's all-in-one app allows you to manage your team, plus create social engagement directly with players. Your team can stay connected beyond game time with blazingly fast features like chat, virtual challenges, game recaps, and profiles. You can manage simply with scheduling, availability tracking, health checks, rosters, and one-click bulk data import. Sign up before September 15th and get Wildcard for free. Simply click the link in the description below for more information. Coach, one more thing. If you haven't signed up for the members only, a quick timeout plus weekly email newsletter, let me tell you what you're missing out on. Each Sunday, I'll be sharing exclusive content not found anywhere else, including coaching courses, web clinics, video breakdowns, and audio and video interviews. That's four pieces of content a month for just $5. All you have to do is click the link in the description, and you'll not only start receiving new newsletters, but you'll also have access to all of our previous pieces of content as well. So sign up today to join the Quick Timeout Podcast Plus. We hope to see you on the list. Uh, you and I were talking just a little bit about this, and I had the same thoughts. I know you know more about their head coach and about the team and probably watch more games than I did. But I watched that final women's game between mm-hmm. Japan and the United States. And just like five minutes in, I thought, man, this is going to be a complete blowout. And then you began to see employed threes and nothing else. And the game was creeping. They weren't scoring as much as the United States was, but you don't need to when you're scoring threes and the other team scoring twos. Yeah, I think, again, you know, that it's what the Olympics gives us, isn't it? Like different cultures, different countries, different way to do things that you probably don't see in domestic leagues. And, and that's what the, the Japanese women's team definitely gave us. They gave us a unique style of play. I found a very attractive style of play, you know, if I'm being honest, because I was looking at that team thinking this is an underside. I, put, I, I, I chose to wear a different lens watching them when I watch them play. I'm thinking, right, what can I take from this? Because I think what, when, you, when you peel it back, we were watching an undersized team survive, perform and flourish against bigger teams. And, you know, I started to unpick what, what is it they were doing that allows them to stay in these games and potentially win these games. And, and when you dig a bit deeper into that team and Japanese basketball, domestic basketball, the, the, the league in, in general, when you dig it a bit deeper, you actually find out pretty quick why these are really, why they're good. I'll get onto that in a second, but in terms of a style of game, it was very simple. It was five out. You know, there was a lot of actions, a lot of, you know, you hear, you hear the term sacrificial cut a lot recently. You know, Finland have been doing that for years at the junior level, senior level. You know, that's, you know, the, the loop cuts there. You know, they throw it into the post and all of a sudden you're defending three cuts like before the ball exits the post. And I'm talking about Finland's under 18 national team, not even talking the pro level. But there was a lot of cutting off the ball with five out front cuts, back cuts, 45 cuts. And it was really a lot of player movement, ball movement. And, you know, listening to Jeff Van Gundy on one of his podcasts, everyone talks about player movement, ball movement. But actually, if you you sit down and forensically watch who's doing it, you know, it's not as common as it sounds. You you very much watch a series of quick hitters, quick hitting actions, get it to the main guy in his place, which is which makes sense. And there's obviously a place for that. But I thought Japan, Japan women's team really utilized player movement, ball movement exceptionally well. I mean, they were early with their offense as well. You know, there was quick hitters, but it was coming out of like a five-out system. You know, the thing that I really liked about them, I found very attractive, they were brave to shoot the three. There was no hesitation getting it up one through five. You know, guards would break out with the dribble. It's one pass, kick ahead, three. Nobody there to rebound. So what? You know, that's their philosophy, and they backed themselves with their philosophy. 
and they committed to it. And I think, you know, when you do that, you, you actually go a long way towards being successful. There's no hesitation. But it was interesting watching the other end. How do they defend the bigger player? And everyone talks about fronting the post. Everybody talks about doubling the post. And that makes absolute sense. And we saw a lot of that. But what I saw that I thought made the biggest difference was playing on the top side of the post in transition. So establishing position early instead of getting pinned behind early. Um, and I thought they did a unique job of that. They doubled it really well also. And I have a question on that for you, Coach. Not necessarily for you, but just to provoke a thought. You know, everyone wants to double the post against the bigger teams. And it was it was Hannah Matola from Finland who got me thinking about this one. Like, why not double the low post, even if it's an undersized big who's not very effective at scoring? Like, how often do we see that or plan for that, where if their four-man or four-woman catches it in the low post, but it's not an effective score, why not double that player? Mm -hmm. Because you're likely to force a difficult action next. The next action, whether it's a turnover or you're forcing players to move on the perimeter who, who maybe don't move. Mm -hmm. um, so leveraging the double of the post, not to stop a unique, big-scoring player there, but to actually punish the team that doesn't move on the perimeter to punish the bad passer out of the post. Um, and the other thing was the rebounding. Like they, you know, we talk about team rebounding. They really rebounded as a team. You know, it was early reaction. It was early effort. It was all five, including that five foot three point guard. They had, it was all five of them crashing the boards. And it was just, a, it, it was really nice to watch commit a team that truly commits to their style of play for 40 minutes every game. I think this is something coaches should think about. I know Bob Ritchie over at Furman, he talks about your culture should show itself in your team style of play. And I would have guessed that that Japanese culture and the term, I love the term, sacrificial cuts, puts in your player's mind that idea of I'm doing this for my teammates. And I, I think that that could be something that's linked back to a core value that you have about sacrifice or teamwork or whatever it is. So that's, that's phenomenal. And, and to your point, I, I definitely agree. We, we have done this and I have found value in it, but not just doubling a, a post because he can punish you scoring wise, but to punish a post player who, who doesn't pass well. I remember a couple of years ago, we were playing a division one team completely outmatched. I noticed that he was really bad at passing out of the post. And so we, we'd sent somebody right down to him right away and had success with it. So, you know, looking for those advantages. And to your point about Japan, just sticking with your game plan, the ball left their hands so quickly, but you could tell they were committed to when we are open, we are going to shoot this. You you, you sparked my thought with it, actually, what you just said there last, you know, listening to, to Coach Hovas. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Tom Hovas, the head coach of Japan women's team. His philosophy is very simple. It's pace and space and fill corners, which is what we saw. They traditionally don't have a true five. So basically, he says, like, they level up every position. So you got fours. You got fours at threes positions. You know, you got fives who play fours. And their philosophy is if you're open, you let it go. There's no hesitation. It doesn't matter of time. It doesn't matter of player. Like, you have the freedom, the green light to shoot the three. And I think that's quite exciting for a player and must mm -hmm. be a sense of freedom. Like, you know, the, the club I've been coaching in the past few years, we would bring in two American imports every year, generally out of college at the pro, and this would be semi-pro level, lower league, lower level pro level, let's say. And the trend that was – the trend every year was I'd find out these guys were used to being restricted. You know, this is your two things that you do and you stay in your lane. And I think the Japanese style of game is very, very, very different. And if I, I'll share with you real quick, Coach. Like, 
what I found was one of their was their players' daily schedule. And if I can give it to you as best I can, it's something like they shoot at 6.30 in the morning, every morning. Oh, by the way, they're full-time pros over there in Japan. The women are full-time pros. They shoot every day. Then they have breakfast together. Then they practice like individual practice 510 and SSC from like 10 to 12.30. Then they have individual training from 2 to 3. And then they have team practice from 3 to 5.30, 5v5. Then they have dinner. And then they come back in the evening and they shoot again at 7.30. And I had to I had to reread this and say, hang on a second, is this like every this is every day, you know? And you know, when you when you research the league itself, the women's domestic league in, in, in Japan, it's incredible the financial investment, you know, and how strong the culture of women's basketball is there. And, and one story, just to, the last thing I'll tell you about it that will really bring it to life is the team that wins the championship there, the sponsorship owners, management will take out an ad in the biggest sports newspaper in Japan and broadcast the fact that they've won the championship. It's a full page color ad and it costs in the area of around $250,000 to put that ad in the paper. And I, like, I mean, that signifies alone the importance, the value, the culture of women's basketball in that country. They're really incredible, but there's a lot on Tom Hovass. If you, if you do some research, he, he's, he's a really incredible guy and really nice to listen to. And his philosophy is really interesting. Um, so that's from a team perspective. Let's talk kind of individual wise, kind of maybe a player or two and what they did that was impressive to you. Wow, that's that's a really great question. And and it's there was so much and so many. But Blazic from Slovenia stood out to me a lot and Prepolic from Slovenia. You know, Luka was amazing. I like we could all watch Luka all day, every day. Now, to be honest with you, I can't watch Luca when, when the game is anytime there's a stoppage of play because he's arguing with the referees. And I think that's something that needs to change. And I'm sure he's 22. So, you know, you, you can't you can't hang him up for that one or you can't hold, you know, call him out for that one too much because I guess that's something I'll manage. But I found Blazic, his teammates, two teammates, Prepolic and Blazic, I found them incredibly interesting to watch. And Prepolic had the layup to beat France and it got blocked. I thought he he showed amazing versatility you know, in terms of both ends of the floor and his movement off the ball. It was almost, you know, not Reggie Miller, but the movement off the ball was Reggie Miller-like. So I found it really interesting watching him. And obviously, Luke, with Luca distributing the ball, there was a perfect match there. But Blazic really impressed me on the other end of the floor. I thought he's on-ball defense and his ability to navigate screens and get over screens, get around screens and rebuild his defense. When he got beaten one-on-one, he had the ability to recover and rebuild the defense. And his use of hands was incredibly amazing. Like, it's something I harp on a lot about, Coach, the use of hands on defense. I think it's under-taught, and I think it's under-emphasized. But he he showed me something spectacular, and, and it wasn't anything that's like, I'm looking at him and I'm going, any player who plays the game to a decent level could be Blazic on defense, because his heart and desire to just, and he's responsibility on the ball was second to none you know he wasn't passing that responsibility or conserving energy it was just really effective footwork it was really like i said you're navigating those screens on the ball off the ball you know closing out getting beat recovering rebuilding the defense i think it was really interesting and and for any player out there if you're trying to improve your on-ball defense blazes from slovenia is your best case study Uh, mike toby from slovenia i found very interesting Everybody was talking about the Australian player who got picked up by the Spurs, uh, Melbourne's player. I forget right now the name escapes me. It'll come back to me in a moment. But I thought Mike Toby from Slovenia was very similar. 
you know, a stretch big who can hit the three, you know, very smart decision-making. You could play through him in the high post, reverse the ball through him on the perimeter, get into the second side action or reverse it again. I thought he was really impressive as well. But I would say the number one, and I'll leave, I'll finish the answer on this one, was the point guard from Japan women's team. 18 assists in the semifinal against France. I think she averaged 14 assists for the tournament. I thought her tenacity, speed of play, decision-making, IQ, vision, unbelievable. Really joy to watch. But there was too many coach to answer, to answer that question succinctly. No, those are good. Talking about Luca and even the, the point guard there from Japan, it just seems like those international guards have such a feel for pace, especially within like pick and roll situations. Their vision of reading the primary defender, the second layer, and sometimes even the third layer of defenders is just so incredible that they come off of that and they're able to find the open man, which then creates those dominoes of an end of an, of an open shot. It's just a lot of fun to watch from that perspective. Let me add one more thing to that that I think was interesting when watching individual players is, is actually what they're doing away from the ball. Hmm. Um, and, I, and I think these international players on both the men's side and the women's side gave us loads of great examples of how to play effectively without the ball in your hands. Hmm. And now the coaches are drawing up really interesting tactics offensively and defensively. And, and I'm not just talking offensively, I'm talking defensively as well. I remember Nando DiColo in the, in the game that France beat the USA made an incredible defensive play that was really a, a key moment to the game. And it was a closeout. And, you know, he was guarding, he was basically guarding 2v1 on the weak side. The ball got moved on from the left from the left side of the floor to the right side of the floor. DiColo was by himself isolated, 2v1. Two, two and he went to close out to the receiver on the right wing on a kickout pass, but anticipated the extra pass to the corner. He closed out. He faked his closeout like he was going to the ball, but then jumped to the ball, anticipating the next pass and deflecting it. And actually coming up with a steal and going the other way and scoring to put France up like five. And, and that was just a super high-level decision. Awareness of what's around him. Position was good. Vision to know that there was two guys there, anticipating what that player was going to do before he got the ball, ultimately led him to make a great decision. And and I think that type of stuff was just really high level. If you, if you watch the way from the ball stuff, yeah, completely agree. Uh, one of my favorite tweets from this past month was one that you made about regarding the coaches and the Olympics and the way that they interacted with their players. Maybe for someone who didn't see that tweet, can you kind of explain what you sure. said within that? And then also maybe the lessons that, that we can learn from that. Sure, sure. Well, let me back end it with this. You know, a couple of years ago, um, I reached out to a bunch of players from different levels. And, and most of these guys I've had, some, I've had some involvement with through their career, be it at a national team on the 16s, 18s, 20s. You know, one of them played in the Olympics in 2012. Some of them playing in Spain professionally in different parts of Europe. And, and I asked them all a very simple question from my own research, my own personal research. It wasn't for anything else in particular. And I said, what do you guys look for in a coach? Just send me back some bullet point things that come to mind. What do you look for in a coach? When, if, when I pieced it all together, the trends were this. They were looking for coaches who allow them to problem solve, who basically give them a voice and a choice in the practice sessions or in preparation for games. They were looking for coaches who step back relinquish control and accept ideas from the players. They were also looking for coaches who invest in the person as well as the player. And stuff like the, their desire was to be coached by somebody who had patience in difficult moments of the game. So that correlated really nicely and, you know, synergized with what I saw at the Olympics. And, and what I saw really was 
coaches who were very focused, had a very calm demeanor. Now, not all the time because we're humans and we, we're, we're not going to be robotics. We're not going to be robotic inside in a performance environment. So, but for the most part, I saw focused coaches who had a very calm demeanor. I saw a lot of good interactions. I mean, what I loved about the, the, the channel I was watching the games on was they would go into the timeouts and you'd get like 10 or 15 seconds of what was going on at the timeout. And, you know, you look at Brian Gorgian from Australia, like Joe Ingles was saying loads in those timeouts. And, you know, Gorgian was sitting back, allowing him to say it. Um, so it was really nice. And you could see that with a lot of the teams, you know, when, when they went into the timeouts. I thought the... The, the coaches' collaboration with their assistant coaches was really interesting to watch. It was really interesting to watch. You would see a lot of the time the, the assistant coaches getting off the bench, approaching the head coach, and you could see the head coach, you know, listening. And that wasn't like, I think at the lower levels, when I observe that type of thing, coach, I see head coaches maybe get a bit dismissive because they're, they're a bit emotional. Oh, yeah, yeah, sit down, sit down. I got you. Yeah, yeah, one more. They're, they're caught up in their emotions a little bit. And and I think that's what separated these guys. I mean, I've been there. <laughs> you know, I haven't managed those moments really well. But also a really refreshing part of, of the observations I had was the respectful interactions with the referees. What I didn't see was coaches who were who had knee-jerk reactions, who were losing emotional control. And I didn't see the opposite of, you know, listening to players. I didn't see dictatorship. You know, it, it looked like very much collaborative approach to what they were doing with the players and with the referees. Like there was coaches challenging referees. There was no doubt about that, mm -hmm. but it never crossed the line of disrespectfulness. And, and I think at the lower levels, you do see it cross the line very often, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, there's some of the things I saw and they were very closely related to that research, that personal research I did a couple of years ago. It was it was interesting how that synergized. It's a very interesting study that actually a peer of mine did, which was viewing sports more as a collaboration, as a partnership, rather than a war mentality of mm. where against each other, there's a winner or a loser, and I'm going to defeat my enemy type of thing. Uh, and it made for a I thought made for a much more enjoyable competition when you have that respect and that collaboration. Well, it probably makes for a more competitive environment, ironically, mm -hmm. because if you take the emotion out of it, you've got to ask, like I always ask my guys, like, where's your attentional focus going right now? And if, mm -hmm. if your emotions are part of that, very often they can take away percentage of your focus on the task at hand. So now you're not performing the task at hand as well as you could do. Whereas if 100% of your attention was going on the task at hand and less on what the referee has just done or less on the mistake you've just made, then you're probably performing better. And if you're performing better, then the competitiveness is better. Mm. You know, everybody's firing on all cylinders kind of thing. So, you know, the emotional control thing, coach, let's not dismiss it. It's really hard. Like, it's not easy. And I'm not on here preaching gospel either. I mean, I could show you plenty of clips of me getting it wrong, you know, throughout the season. There's no question. But... I think it starts with an awareness of your emotional control before you actually can improve that aspect. But yeah, we definitely didn't see that from these Olympic coaches. I thought they were outstanding. And I thought the other thing that grabbed me was how often they sit down. And it begs the, and I, I begged the question for me, like if you look at like rugby coaches, they sit up in the stands. Hmm. And I was thinking, I wonder what my team would do if I set up in the stand and let them, I just, out of curiosity, you know, I mean, Probably not vulnerable enough to do that. Um, maybe I'll be worried about what people who are there seeing me do that will think. Right. But it was really interesting how much they sat down for and, and didn't patrol the sidelines. 
All right, last thing here. As you watched over the course of those two weeks and see basketball as a whole, is there anything that sticks out to you or stands out to you in regards to where our game is going? I think the Olympics is probably not the best barometer for that. It depends on the level your coach. And I think that question probably needs to be asked for different um, levels. Um, because I think that where the game is going from a junior perspective and where it's going from a senior perspective, obviously going to be slightly different because if you look at the Olympics, there was incredible. There was a lot of different tactical stuff going on that maybe a junior coach or a less experienced coach didn't recognize or wouldn't have seen because, you know, it goes back to what you see as knowledge dependent. And I think, you know, if you have a broad knowledge of the, the, the game at a high level, you see some impressive stuff at the Olympics, but a junior coach may not see that. Um, where the game is going, it's it's interesting. I think the post game, you know, we talked years ago, is the post game dead? It's not. It's it's still flourishing. You know, pick and roll coverages, drop coverage. Are are, are we going to see more hard shows? You know, aggressive trapping. You know, teams will tell you. There would some guys will tell you at the pro level, you can trap the ball screen. They'll pass out of it. And now you're playing three on two on the backside, and they'll punish that. Well, actually. We saw some teams really do a hell of a job trapping ball screens. And, you know, you see Spain going triangle in two against Slovenia, boxing one. You know, Nick Nurse has brought that back to life in Toronto two or three years ago. The game is evolving. Which way it's going to go, it's so hard to say. But let me ask, let me let me throw some questions your way, coach. Not your way, but for the audience, I guess, you know. If you look at timeouts, for example, I was interesting about timeouts, like, why not call a time? Some teams wait a long time to call a timeout. And I was wondering, why not? Why would you not call a timeout in the third quarter after 90 seconds? What's the barrier to that? You know, if, you, if, you got a, if you've done a 0-6 run. And there was a couple of games where I saw that, you know, even in the Olympics. And I was wondering, what would I do? And, and I guess it's back to what stage are you at? Now, the Olympics are critical. I was surprised that teams didn't call timeouts earlier. And it made me wonder, like, the next time I'm having a bit of a coach's roundtable, have a chat about what's your criteria to call a timeout? What's your trigger? What makes you walk to that table and say timeout? Or what prevents you from doing it? The other question I'm going to throw out there just for, just for stimulation. With the trend of 0.5, zero-second offense, ball movements, is the jab step game dying, dead? needs to be dead or needs to be revitalized and i'll share my thoughts i'll answer my own question i guess here with this because otherwise i'm kind of cheating am i well from where i'm at at the moment i think the jab step game the jab series is alive and well but only in the low post uh for the way i want to coach and for how i want to play the game our teams I think it is dying on the perimeter i think it is dead but is it useful while other actions materialize the other thing was, speaking of post, post-entries, post-entry passing. Is it coached enough? Because when I watch college basketball, your level, or our level here at the Pro in the UK, or European Championships in the summer, I always ask myself, is it coached enough? Because I think it's poor. I don't think it's good. And then you, then you ask yourself, well, what are the teaching points? And how do you develop it? I feel like post, we work on, you know, everyone works on closeouts, on ball defense every day. Should we be working on post-entry passes every day? Is it part of your daily vitamins routine and, and these type of things, you know? Other thing that grabbed me from the Olympics, technical fouls, coach. Last thing, last couple of things, technical fouls. How do they impact the game for the players? 
Is it ever for the good? So us coaches getting a technical foul is that is and you know, you see sometimes teams rally, but is it ever is it truly ever for the good or are we fooling ourselves and saying it is? Like my guys really got after after I got tossed in the game. No, they didn't. The first the first two minutes they had to manage their emotions about oh what the coach has gone and deal with the embarrassment of the coach maybe getting thrown out as well, you know. So yeah, just a couple of things that came to mind while watching these games, coach. I mean, there's plenty more, but otherwise I'll waffle on too much. Those are great. That gives me an excuse to have you back on is for us to answer all those questions. <laughs> Before I let you go, how can people connect with you? You share a ton of great information, so I want to make sure that they hit the chance to do that. Twitter is pretty good. I'm pretty active on Twitter because I follow guys like yourself and, and other great coaches who who I steal from. So at CoachKeen14, um, it's it's, you know, private message there if you want or whatever. I'm happy to jump on a call and, and you know, as coaches, we like to talk. So, I mean, Twitter's probably the best first place, yeah. Great share of the game. So please make sure that you go follow Coach Keen. That's Coach Alan Keen. Coach, thanks so much for working with me to make this happen. Uh, pleasure, pleasure. Love what you do, buddy. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again at the next time out.